The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. afternoon or good whenever it happens to be for you listening to the Main Street Vegan Show today. It is my pleasure to be part of your morning or part of your evening or part of your life. I am Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Show. If you are brand new, thank you. Thanks for stopping by. You might want to take a look at our archives and see some of the wonderful shows that we have had on in the past four years. That feels as if it has gone by so quickly. But if you're someone who's interested in health, do check out our shows with Dr. Colin Campbell, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Joel Kahn, Dr. Joel Furman, dietitians like uh, Marty Davey, Brenda Davis. And um, if you're an ethical vegan or if you're interested in animals, we've had Ingrid Newkirk from PETA, Bruce Friedrich from Farm Sanctuary, Jean Bauer from Farm Sanctuary, and just take a look, take a gander, and then have a listen. You know, it's wonderful to have people on the show who have a reputation in, in the vegan world or in the bigger world. I mean, we've had Russell Simmons and Mary Lou Henner, and that's all so exciting. But we've also had a lot of guests who maybe aren't known in the world by name, but they are infinitely interesting. And sometimes those are actually some of the best shows because some of the people who are just regular folks in one way are so exceptional in other ways. So do take a look at the old shows, enjoy today's new show, and uh, let me know what you'd like to hear and who you'd like to have on the show because we do aim to please. Now, something that I usually don't do is back up and say, I want to talk about last week, but last week was a show in which I learned a lot. And you know, I've been vegan 32 years, vegetarian longer than that, and I feel like There's not all that much left to learn, but you know what? There is so much left to learn. And last week, I had on Jay Morris Hicks and his co-author, Dr. Carrie Graff. They've written a book called The Four Leaf Plan. And I was really amazed. The Four Leaf Guide, I'm sorry, Four Leaf Guide to Vibrant Health. And we had kind of a little back and forth. Because I say vegan. I believe in vegan. I think as James McWilliams, the wonderful uh, professor, author of Just Food, says, vegan is a very hopeful word. And if you've listened for a while, you know that I am not 
the most generous person with the term plant-based because I don't think it says very much. But I have to tell you, um, Mr. Hicks and Dr. Graff explained that plant-based philosophy to me in a way that I had not understood it before. And now I, I do get it. And one of the ways that I get it is in taking their little survey. And if you go to the website, which is fourleafprogram.com, and that's numeral fourleaf.com, and then you just click on Take Survey, you can take the food that you eat today and just see how close it is to 80% of calories coming from whole plant foods. It seems that Jim Hicks is an engineer and he knows about algorithms and he was able to figure this thing out. Now, I have to tell you, I like surveys. You know, I grew up on girls' magazines with lots of quizzes, you know, is he the boy for you and things like that. But this is really fascinating. So I do recommend that you listen to last week's show and that you check out that uh, Four Leaf website and take the survey. It might be uh, very instructive. I have certainly found it so. Well, we are going to turn this week from the physical to the spiritual, although, good heavens, we're all completely connected. You guys know that. And we're going to talk about a couple of Eastern religions in which veganism, vegetarianism, reverence for life are parts of the core teaching. These are a couple of the ahimsa-based religions, and we know that ahimsa means non-harming or non-killing. Now, we have talked with yogis, with uh, yoga coming out of, of the Hindu tradition. We've talked with Catholic and Protestant Christians. We've talked with uh, Jewish rabbis and, and Jewish scholars. And we have not yet spoken with a Buddhist or with a Jain. And so today we're going to be doing both of those things. I'm going to be introducing to you first American Buddhist Bob Isaacson. And what he says is that although the Buddhist message was that all beings deserve our compassion and should not be harmed, modern-day Buddhists and Buddhist setters routinely eat animals and use their products. Bob Isaacson was co-founder and is president and CEO of Dharma Voices for Animals, whose mission is to remind Buddhists worldwide of the Buddha's message. Hey, Bob. Hi, Victoria. Can you hear me? I can hear you beautifully. Lovely speaking with you today. You're out on the West Coast, aren't you? I am in uh, San, San Diego County. Lovely. Well, what a beautiful place to be at any time of the year, and what a great place to be a vegan and a Buddhist, I would think. Uh, actually, every place is great to be a Buddhist and a vegan, but uh, <laughs> San Diego is one of the best. Yeah, you're right. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit. Let's go back. Before we get into Dharma Voices for Animals, just tell the listeners who don't know much at all about Buddhism, tell us about the Buddha and then tell us what he taught. Sure. Uh, the Buddha was a, an historical figure. He actually was a, a real person. Historians are unanimous. Lived approximately 2,600 years ago born in what is now present-day Nepal and lived, for the most part, in what is now present-day northern India. And the Buddha had an awakening liberation experience uh, under the Bodhi tree one day. He was a young man, and he decided to teach, which he did for 45 years. So his teachings, uh, he, was, uh, he wandered, he had uh, groups of people that followed him, uh, and his teachings are now recorded. They're recorded actually several hundred years later. It was an oral tradition. Uh, and the Buddha taught uh, non-harming and compassion. So the key to uh, the Buddhist practice is to follow the precepts. And the Buddha was unique in those days, and he still is unique. And, and the Jain religion, I know you're going to have a caller on uh, next, is maybe the only other religion or spiritual path in the world today uh, where the basic teaching, the teaching of the uh, spiritual leader, is uh, uh, compassion and non-harming towards non-human animals. It's quite unique. Buddhism and Jainism uh, share that. So you're right. We started several friends of mine um, about four years ago, about four and a half years ago. We decided we needed an organization to remind Buddhists around the world. And there are approximately 
one half billion or 500 million Buddhists in the world, most living in Asia, reminding them of the teachings of the Buddha and the Dharma, which uh, is specifically what the teachings of the Buddha is called, that the Buddha uh, was very clear that the meditation path and the spiritual path was compassion and non-harming towards all sentient beings, sentient being being one who can feel pain. So, as you mentioned, it's unfortunate today that although many Buddhists in the world, and this differs depending on culture and country, um, are, are vegetarian and, and a lot of vegans, um, there are a lot that aren't. So we have our work cut out for us, and we are an international organization trying to reach out to all Buddhist communities in the world. Mm. Mm. Well, you you have said so much, and you've reminded me of so many things. The first thing was a, a quotation from Sean Monson, who, whose new documentary, um, Unity, just uh, premiered last week. And he said, if the biological imperative is survival, the spiritual imperative is compassion. And that sure sounds like something the Buddha could have said. Yeah, exa- Exactly. Now, compassion is the center, uh, well, supposedly of all religions, but the Buddha really uh, insisted upon this. Uh, It's a centerpiece, as you're saying there, and suggesting it's a centerpiece to to the practice. When one sits to meditate, uh, to see what things actually are, and we do this in a meditation, uh, if we're eating violence and uh, and uh, contributing to violence and harm by what we put on our bodies and what we're what we're, what we're wearing, uh, animal testing for buying products that we tested on animals, uh, we um, we're not living according to the Buddhist uh, teachings. So this is uh, we're a, a modern, obviously a modern day organization that's going back to our roots in Buddhism to remind. Uh, cultures and communities uh, around the world that are Buddhists uh, to, um, uh, first of all, to take a look very carefully at their choices around food. It's the most important, I know you know, uh, most, most important decision we can make. So, we're, we're, you know, we're experiencing a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of success. There's, of course, resistance in different places. Uh, but if I, if I might, I'm, I'm going to Sri Lanka uh, October in late October Sri Lanka is an example of a country where we are really having a big impact, where Dharma Voices for Animals is having a big impact. I'm hopeful that I'll be meeting with the president of the country, President Surajit. Yeah, with the president, we uh, we have a very active chapter there. We have 20 chapters around the world, and we have a very active chapter there. They're going to be... Excuse me, while we chair, do that. Well, uh, and uh, hopefully he will meet with me, and at the very least, um, someone in, in, on his staff. And I'll be there to hand him a petition of some fourteen hundred thirty signatures that we gathered on our website in support of the first animal welfare, animal rights bill uh, in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, and this will have you know a big impact on the way animals are treated especially in factory farming and also in animal testing. So we're also going to have a press conference there. I'm going to be talking to school children and uh, officially launching our Sri Lanka DVA or Dharma Voices for Animals chapter. Um, so th- this we have a very big uh, backing in Sri Lanka, which is a Buddhist country. Over 70% of its population identify as Buddhist. A lot of vegetarians, there are some vegans, including our chapter leader and some of our chapter members. So this, of course, is the message that I'll be bringing there uh, through different talks and interactions and hopefully with a one-on-one uh, with the president, President Sirisena of Sri Lanka. Oh, I so hope that happens. That's really exciting. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions about Buddhism, veganism, or whatever's on your mind, give us a call, 888-558-6489. Now, I remember, Bob, when Dharma Voices for Animals was being founded, because I know one of your co-founders, Patty right. Brightman, author uh-huh. of uh, co-author of How to Eat Like a Vegetarian, even if you never want to be one. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful cookbook and lots of other great work in the world. And I remember that prior to the founding of your organization, she had run into this, that at some of the American Buddhist centers, the people were so wonderful and so committed and and just really committed to meditation and, and kindness 
but the the animal piece was missing. Was that something that you also found? Yeah, exactly. So Patty is one of our co-founders. Uh, she is secretary and a member of our board. We have seven board members. Uh, and th- this is the reason, what you're saying is the reason that we decided to uh, to launch our, our organization. Uh, and it's our experience was directly, as you're saying, in uh, in the United States, that although we tried one-on-one and to individually engage Buddhists uh, and uh, those that are running Buddhist centers to try to move them towards a more compassionate uh, offering of food, offering of products, there is a lot of resistance, and there still is. So that's the reason we knew we needed an organization. But that resistance is certainly here in this country, but also in other countries. I, I was I traveled to Taiwan last year. I should mention that uh, Dharma Voices for Animals is now a member of the World Fellowship of Buddhists. As mm-hmm. best we can tell, it's the largest Buddhist organization in the world. Uh, they had a huge conference where we were uh, admitted as a regional center. And of the 200 or so regional centers around the world, as far as I can tell, we're the only advocacy group. Uh, so we're in there, and now we have access to some of the top Buddhist uh, teachers and leaders around the world, which is especially important in Asian countries where so many people identify as Buddhists. But we're, you know, we, we meet resistance in a lot of in a lot of places. But that's what we try to do. We try to engage people, you know, in a in a polite, respectful way, and to see if we can find some common grounds, and then to to start um, trying to move them uh, towards a more compassionate um, um, lifestyle and a more compassionate policy in in these centers. We do it one by one, but our chapters. Uh, we have four in Asia, three in Europe, and one in South America. The rest in the U.S. are on the ground there, so they are able to interact in a, in a more personal level with uh, centers in their area, such as New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Diego, and then in the uh, Asian countries of Taiwan, uh, Perth, Australia, uh, Sri- Colombo, Sri Lanka, I mentioned before, and Singapore is our fourth. We hope to have. Sent, uh, we hope to have uh, chapters in all of the major Buddhist countries in the world. But right, you know, we right now we're making really big progress. So this is important. It's just about engagement, about getting to know people, about sharing with them. There is some mm, disconnect with um, with the Buddhist uh, teachings. So it's our responsibility uh, to remind people of what the Buddha said about non harming and compassion. That he doesn't distinguish between humans on the one hand and non-human animals on the other. It's very clear that uh, no creature, no matter how small, no matter how um, unimportant he seems or she seems to so many people, that uh, that being is entitled to our compassion and to not be harmed by us. Mm-hmm. So that, that is our teaching. That's, a, that's the centerpiece of our organization. That's so that's lovely. So lovely. When you talked about getting back to the roots. I am reminded of when I was invited to start this show on Unity Online Radio because the Unity Movement was founded in the 1800s by a very vocally vegetarian couple. And uh, when the woman who was uh, in charge of Unity Online Radio at that time contacted me, she said, it's time we get back to our roots. So I think there's a lot of, of returning to the roots. So could you explain to me a little bit, Bob, I know that as, as Buddhism grew beyond India, and, and, and one kind of sect, I guess you'd say, went, went south more into Sri Lanka and Thailand, and, and another part of, of Buddhism went, went into China, and that kind of went into Tibet and Japan. So it seems that the vegetarianism maybe went north and not south. Am I correct? You are. It's very, very good summary. So it went south first uh, from northern India, where the Buddha was, the first disciples that got into what we now would say are other countries. Uh, of course, the country, countries and the boundaries didn't exist back then, were Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has a unbroken, uninterrupted Buddhist uh, tradition of 1,900 years. It's the, the longest in the, uh, in the world. And then uh, that, and that Sri Lanka is part of the so-called Theravada tradition. And the other countries, the other major Asian countries that are part of this tradition 
are Thailand and Burma. Also, a little bit in Cambodia and Laos, but those are the, the main countries, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, and to a lesser extent, Laos and Cambodia. In Sri Lanka, there is a pretty strong uh, understanding of compassion towards animals. Uh, many of the monks, and I was actually surprised to learn this, but our chapter leader and our chapter members are sharing, are vegetarian. And, some, and vegetarian in Asia often means vegan. Although people may not be familiar with that, there's not a lot of uh, dairy and eggs in, in a lot of, in many of the uh, Asian cultures. And then, of course, some some teachers go go to uh, um, go completely to plant based, or as you prefer, uh, the term vegan. Um, so Sri Lanka, is, you know, it, on on the whole, does pretty well. On the other hand, in Burma, it's very difficult to find a vegetarian. Uh, we have there's a couple. <laughs> there aren't many. There's only one teacher we know of who keeps vegetarian. And Thailand, it's pretty much the same. So we have a lot of work to do in those countries. And then you point out Northern Asia. So this is the so-called Mahayana, Mahayana tradition. And those countries include China. It is estimated that over 200 million Buddhists live in China. Now there's uh, seemingly more opportunity to practice uh, religion there, to practice Buddhism. Uh, there's a very strong monastic community. All the monastics that I have met or heard of in China are, are vegetarian. They do it. Uh, they have to take vows, their, pre, their precepts and their vinaya, which are their vows as nuns or monks, to, uh, to not eat animals. Uh, but then if you go to countries like South Korea and uh, Japan, far, further north, um, you start seeing not a lot of, uh, of vegetarianism. Uh, so th there is that distinction, and, and I might point out that, uh, and without getting into too much detail because of our time, that there are two um, basic uh, teachings, one for the Theravada tradition, the Southern uh, Asia tradition, the other for Mahayana. In Mahayana, the Buddha was quite clear not to eat animals. Uh, it's all on our website. We also have a film, that, uh, which is now on YouTube. We have 25,000 hits. It's uh, produced by award-winning uh, filmmaker Keegan Kuhn, who also uh, did Cowspiracy. I know it's, that would be familiar to a lot of your readers, a lot of your listeners. So if you go to our website, there's a link to our YouTube um, of, of video. It's 50 minutes long, and it, it lays out very uh, uh, carefully um, from the point of view of scholars and world-renowned teachers in the two traditions what the Buddha taught. So Mahayana, it's, it's, it's even easier to make a case that uh, Buddhists should not be eating animals. And Theravada, it's still pretty easy to make the case, not quite as easy as it is um, to the Mahayanans. Uh, so that I think that's an overview that I can share with, with your listeners. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. I learned from Rin Berry, the vegetarian historian, that there was actually a time in history in, in Japan, interestingly enough, when the raising of livestock and, and the killing of animals for food was actually outlawed for some 200 years, hmm. which was surprising and, and fascinating, and, and also that it was Buddhist monks who invented the first faux meats. So hmm. whenever somebody is kind of like, oh, why do you need something that tastes like an animal? Well, you know what? If a monk a thousand years ago... <laughs> <laughs> like some foam meat every now and then. I think it's okay for us too. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with you. Uh, so yeah, there there have been periods of time, and I'm learning more about this as I go along. When, as you say, vegetarianism, and again in Asia, that is pretty close, if not completely, veganism. They're not the same, of course. Uh, here, but they tend to merge uh, in, in Asia. Um, there were times when the monks and the nuns, at least, were, uh, were keeping to a cruelty-free diet. Um, what happened, according to our chapter leader and other senior members of our Colombo Sri Lanka chapter, without, I'll be meeting everyone person in October, what they say is that before uh, colonialism, uh, there mo much, if not most, of Sri Lanka was vegetarian, but the British brought along their own eating habits and, fa and introduced factory farming in a, in a you know, kind of a, a rudimentary form 
and then the people have adopted that. So it's 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 a challenge to get folks back to their roots. But this is one of our one of our uh, goals is to remind Asians of their roots because mo- in most ancient cultures, P- Buddhists at least were predominantly uh, vegetarian. That's totally fascinating, and I also just have a question, Bob. When Americans say, I'm going to a Buddhist center, I'm studying Buddhism now, are they studying Mahayana or, I know there's a better word than Hinayana, but I'm not coming, Theravada, (laughs) Uh, or is it something different? Is it a hybrid? So it all it all depends. It's you know we're living at a time now of mass communication and the internet and Skype calls and and everything and transportation where uh, cultures have merged and the teachings of the Buddha are now available to us just by going to the internet. Uh, so things have changed rapidly in the last ten years and and of course in the last hundred years. But they're all traditions are available here because of the. Um, uh, you know, really difficult situation in Tibet. So many Tibetan teachers are in exile. They don't live in Tibet anymore, so they live abroad. They live in throughout Asia. They live in Europe. Many, many wonderful Tibetan teachers, including our own Geshe-la Felgi, who is, uh, I like to call him our ambassador. Uh, so he'll be here in San Diego again. He was just here recently to help us with a fundraiser that we have anyone in the San Diego area on September 18th. Uh, you'll be, have a chance to meet Geshe Lefelgi, who was a former member of the Tibetan parliament in exile, and also the student uh, of the Dalai Lama. He has a very close relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So um, you have opportunities to practice Tibetan Buddhism with some of the top teachers in the world here in the U.S. Also, you can practice uh, Zen, uh, Japanese style or South Korean, Korean style Zen. So both Tibetan and Zen traditions are under the Mahayana uh, tradition we, uh, we talked about. Um, and the other alternative, and that's what I have taken, I'm a lay teacher in the Theravada um, tradition, which is more southern India, excuse me, southern uh, Asia, Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand, and Burma. Uh, everything's available. There are retreat centers all over the place, uh, teachers uh, uh, everywhere you can really practice whatever you want, um, and it's uh, it's very very available. Well, let me ask you, Bob, since you did mention Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama, this morning I had a, a conversation. A gentleman is in town named, named Thomas Jackson. He's a filmmaker from Florida, and he's here scouting locations for a feature film that he's working on. But he also has in mind a, a documentary about veganism and and spirituality. And we were talking about culture and and practice. And he was telling the story of, of how um, he was taking a non-poisonous snake out to the woods so that it you know wouldn't be around people and, and get anybody in trouble. But somehow the snake got out of, of the container and was right next to his foot while he was driving. And, and he said, I, I just panicked, even though, you know, I, I, I catch these snakes and, and take them to a safer place all the time. But the fact that I was in a car and he was close to my foot, the cultural teaching, snakes are dangerous, snakes are poisonous, snakes are bad, mm-hmm. spoke more clearly than his experience with this particular kind of snake. And I was thinking that, I mean, I spent time in Tibet, and I know that it's very difficult to be a vegetarian in Tibet simply because it's really hard to grow any vegetables. But I also know that, as you said, Tibetan Buddhism has been centered in northern India for a very long time, and yet that cultural practice of eating meat is difficult. And and His Holiness the Dalai Lama has, has written about wanting to be vegetarian and never quite managing that for an extended period. So what do you say about culture versus religion versus the reality of, of the environment and the world that we're living in right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks. Uh, so we've talked about many different Asian countries, and each one is completely different. The culture is different. The language is different. Relationship to Buddhism is different. Uh, so it's really important to understand before we take positions and, and tell people what we think they should be doing to understand their own 
of the culture in, of the place in which we're, uh, we're, we're dealing with, that we're, we're communicating with. So this is very true. Geshe-la Felgi, who I mentioned, by the way, Geshe and Geshe-la stand for a degree. It's the highest degree that can be achieved in Tibetan society. It's equivalent, it is said, of a PhD. So he teaches at Eastern Washington University, uh, speaks good English, um, and he's had maybe a hundred uh, audiences of the Dalai Lama, who was his personal uh, Dharma teacher and his mentor, sent him to the United States. So you're right; there are a lot of Tibetans, in particular, uh, who uh, have real difficulty uh, keeping a vegetarian lifestyle, uh, let alone a vegan lifestyle. And the reason is, as you say again, that uh, their, the habits are so strong. Very little grows. Uh, very, very, very little vegetables and grain grow at high altitudes. Uh, Geshe Lafelgi, I remember, our ambassador um, uh, was a nomad. Uh, his family was a nomadic family, and they lived at altitudes in excess of ten thousand feet. But many of these teachers, most of them now, the ones we know about, are in the West, where food is available. Uh, and you know, uh, nutritious, uh, delicious, interesting food, um, and yet still there is, uh, with some people, a difficulty in making the switch. So this actually goes to the heart of the Buddhist practice. We, you know, we're supposed to turn our attention to the, to the difficulty, to where we get stuck, because that's where we learn. So this is a practice, and there are a lot of wonderful Tibetan teachers. We also have Geshe-la Thapki, in Cologne, Germany. He's the advisor, the Dharma advisor, the uh, uh, spiritual advisor to our Germany chapter. Um, and he's, you know, he's a, a tremendous um, uh, vegetarian uh, advocate. Uh, and he, has, he runs a, um, uh, a sanctuary, an animal sanctuary in, in Tibet. That's, uh, oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. Our experience in Tibet was that we were befriended by a lot of people. You know, you're supposed to have a guide in Tibet, a Chinese guide, but ours was actually drunk at the hotel, and so we didn't have a guide. <laughs> so we ended up meeting lots and lots of locals, and many of them would have us over to their homes, and when they learned that we were vegan, they were so impressed by that, and they mm. would fix these beautiful spreads. I don't know where they got the food. And then they would leave and go eat in another room. And it was explained to us that they think that anybody who's vegetarian is, is some kind of high lofty spiritual person, you know, who, who wouldn't want to eat with mere mortals, which was really embarrassing because those people have more spirituality, uh, than I think I could hope to have in a lifetime. But it was really interesting to see that even in a place where it's very difficult to not consume animal products, the teaching is there and, and the respect for that is there. So I am so happy, Bob, that you and Patty and your colleagues founded Dharma Voices for Animals. Anybody who is interested in their good work, um, being part of that, helping them out, Go to dharmavoicesforanimals.org, and dharma is D-H-A-R-M-A, dharmavoicesforanimals.org. They're also on Facebook, Dharma Voices for Animals, with a dash in between each one of those words. Thank you so much for taking this time today, Bob, and may you and the President of Sri Lanka do amazing things. Thank you very much, Victoria. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. And everybody else, please stay with us through these messages. We are going to be talking with a member of the Jain religion of India. Stay with us. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. 
Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everyone. So happy to be talking with you today and talking with our wonderful guests about the Ahimsa religions, this wonderful belief that harmlessness and compassion is at the center of all things. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to just bring up a couple of books that you might find interesting if the subject in general is of interest to you. The first is by Rin Berry, who actually was a great friend of my next guest and a great friend of mine. Um, Rin wrote Food for the Gods, Vegetarianism and the World's Religions, a really, really wonderful book that goes into details on the religions that we're talking about today and on those we've talked about at other times and how a vegetarian, vegan lifestyle fits with that. Another book that I was recently given by the great generosity of Mark Bronstein, author of Radical Vegetarianism and Microgreen Garden. Mark has been a guest on this show. He gave me his copy of a really rare book called on Abstinence from Animal Food. This book was written by Porphyry, a student of Pythagoras and a vegetarian, vegan actually, in ancient Greece. And it's just amazing to me that here is somebody who believed in Zeus and, you know, the Greek gods and all these things that we think of as so antiquated And he wrote this wonderful book about being vegetarian and his opposition to animal sacrifices, which were, of course, done a lot back then. So if you are someone who likes to know where we came from, then uh, I recommend that you take a look at those two books. Now I am going to be introducing you to a charming fellow, Saurabh Dalal. Saurabh is a member of the Jain religion. And it was one of the prominent Jain saints, Mahavira, who said, arguably, my most favorite quotation of all time, and that is, to every creature, his own life is very dear. Sarab enjoys being involved in outreach and education and greater advocacy of ahimsa and sustainable diets. He was brought up as a Jain and has been active in the Jain community all his life. His passion is the promotion of veganism. He was deputy chair of the International Vegetarian Union, president of the Vegetarian Society of D.C. He did that for 18 years. He has graduate degrees in physics and engineering, takes part in several professional and technical societies, and explores ways of integrating sound science into his activism. Welcome, Sarab Dalal. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me, and also for including these great discussions that you have especially connecting veganism to spirituality. You know, when I started out, that was one of the primary reasons I did it. I I went vegetarian as as a teenager because I'd gotten into yoga, and it certainly seemed like the next step. And I think it's wonderful when anybody embarks on the vegan path for any reason. I just think that we haven't been seeing quite as much of the spiritual reasons for people to make the switch in recent years. Yes, absolutely. And maybe that's because uh, the other reasons are are more compelling. So I guess they're all Mm -hmm. good, very, very good. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about Jainism, because this is a religion that I think most Americans, unless they've studied religions, may be unfamiliar with. So introduce us. Sure. Okay. Well, so Jainism is one of the world's oldest religions, and it's uh, separate and independent from every other religion. 
though there are many common themes. And so Jainism is focused on the soul and each living being having a soul. It's everything from one sense beings like plants to five sense like mammals, including humans. And so the Jain philosophy talks about a path to enlightenment and where each soul can transcend the cycle of birth and rebirth, what we call samsara, and based on the thoughts and the words and the deeds that are done over the course of this life and past lives and future lives through the law of karma, you know, each soul can then release itself from this cycle of birth and rebirth to reach this uh, ultimate state of some, you know, to reach this ultimate state of moksha, also known as nirvana. So those are kind of like the, the primary ideas. And the philosophy, although it's very, you know, rich and very complex, it really emphasizes these five principles. They're called the bunch bruts. And they are and very similar to Buddhism, as you just spoke about. And so they are ahimsa, which, of course, is non-harm, non-violence, and satya, which is the truth, and it's us seeking the truth and incorporating the truth into our lives. It's astia, which is taking only what is given to you, non-stealing, um, brahmacharya, which is purity of body, purity of mind, and aparigraha, which is detachment from all material things. And so there are some other concepts. I want to mention one more, which is this idea of anikant bad, and that's that um, there's a multiplicity of views, and the truth can only be obtained by looking through various perspectives. And so there's no one view on the truth, but you have to look at multiple perspectives in order to approach it. And so the bunch of ruts that I mentioned, these are very important. All of them are important. And the first and foremost of those is ahimsa, which is the nonviolence. And one more thing I wanted to mention, interestingly, is that Jainism does not believe in any supreme being or God, if you will, as a creative force in the universe. It's not a creative force or even active in the universe. But Jainism certainly believes in divinity where each soul has the potential of becoming purified and enlightened. Mm. So that's kind of my, my, my broad sketch of Jainism. Well, that, that's a beautiful explanation that is, is understandable to those of us from the West. Now, it is my understanding that Jainism is the only religion in the world that actually requires vegetarianism of its members. Is that true? You know, so that's... When I, would, when I would say that, I would say that anyone who's a follower of Jainism, if they believe in Ahimsa, it is a natural consequence of that. And so in terms of a requirement, I'd say there are things that are in line with Jain ideology, and there are things that are not in line. And certainly being vegetarian is absolutely in line with uh, Jain principles. So as our requirement goes, I don't know how to answer that question, but I would say that uh, anyone who's a true follower of Jainism is vegetarian. And of course, what we're doing now is to have people understand all the reasons why chains should be vegan as well. Now, it is also my understanding that karma is a really big deal in Jainism and, yes. and that it's, it's, it's almost, as I think of you being a physicist and an engineer, it, it's almost with engineering precision that karma works. I'm fascinated by karma. My latest book, as you know, is The Good Karma Diet. Yes, so for, for a Jain... Being vegetarian or possibly even being vegan is a big karmic boost. Is this correct? Yes, yes, definitely. So if you're consuming foods that come from violence, that come from harm, that are, um, we'll use the term that not sattvic uh, foods, then, then absolutely it's the harm that's done, which, uh, of course, affects others, including our planet, but it also affects your own soul. And so the negative karma, these are actually particles. They're particles, and they attach to your soul and bind your soul to, to the world. And so it's whether you do good actions that results in good karma, that's also binding. And, of course, negative actions have you know, strong negative consequences, and they also bind your soul. And so karma is very important in Jainism, and everything we do in thoughts and our words and our deeds have a karmic consequence. And so a... Vegan diet is far better and less karmic than diets that include violence or any other animals that are injured or killed in the process. That's so interesting to me because I know as an American, now most of us are not raised with reincarnation. I was because 
my parents hired this amazing woman to be my live-in nanny <laughs> when oh, I was an well, infant. And we were together you, yeah. until her death, and she raised me on reincarnation. So it's not an odd concept to me. But I think to mm-hmm. most people, it's, you know, it, it's, it's new. It, it's different. And yet I think that even the most um, humanistic American listener can think about the happiness that comes from compassion. The researchers who've studied happiness tell us over and over again that the greatest happiness comes to humans who show compassion for others. And they're really Mm. only looking at compassion towards other humans. Yes. So expand it, and that's, that's quite a bit. So... In, in Jainism, are the vegetarian teachings more about animal rights, what we would today call animal rights, or spiritual growth, or, or both? How does that work? Yeah, you know, it is both. And so, again, since we all affect the world, everything that we do does have consequences. And so uh, our actions, including diet, um, as we all know, and your listeners know, is that um, there's harm involved because these are all you know, sentient beings who have their own capacity to think and to feel. And so, therefore, they have, as the quote, the wonderful quote you mentioned at the beginning from Mahavira, is that they're all interested in, you know, fulfilling their, you know, whatever their potential is, and we shouldn't be hindering others. And so, in terms of what we do in diet, we absolutely, you know, should not choose to harm animals because of, you know, because of our food. And, and so that's the animal rights part of it, and it certainly is because we have respect and compassion for all living beings. And then the spiritual part of it is that as we do things that are harmful to others, that in turn results in the karmic consequence back to us. And so it is affecting our own souls too. So I would say it's both. It's definitely yeah. about animal rights, and it's also about spiritual progress towards enlightenment. Yes, well, I was talking with Bob earlier about the difficulty that a lot of Tibetan Buddhists have, even when they leave Tibet, of, of giving up animal products. And I know that in India, there's a great cultural reverence for, for milk and, and ghee and, and cheese and, and these kinds of, of foods that, that come from the cow. So in, in Jainism, as you, and I, I know that Chitrabhanu, the, the Jain teacher who's in New York part of the time, he's gone vegan mm-hmm. and is teaching yeah. that, and a lot of young Jains are going vegan. What kind of response do you get from older people, more traditional people? Now, Chitrabhanu's in his 80s, so I guess mm-hmm. it's not really an age thing. Yeah, but, I just turned 90, yeah. The, the mass of, of Jains, how, how do they respond to this influx of, of vegan thought? You know, it's been interesting. We've um, we've had a lot of um, you know resistance to it, and surprisingly, because you think that you know a philosophy that has ahimsa at its core, you know, should be so open to it. And I think a lot of people are still living back in you know decades past where they think that the animals are treated like a member of the family, and the products taken from them are only what's extra, and all the animals are treated with respect, and they're not killed early, and, and so forth. And so I think a lot of that is still the thinking from from decades back. And so it's been a struggle when we try and promote this and kind of show them, you know, this is what's happening not only where you live today, if it's in a Western country, but also when you're living in India, when I've gone to various dairy farms, if you will, and all that, you know, the conditions are not all that different, especially in the big cities. And so I think a lot of it is because people want to believe, you know, one thing, and uh, they're just not really uh, looking at the reality that is today. And so whether it's, um, you know, in India, of course, in large towns, but even in smaller towns, they're also moving this uh, direction. And so it's, it's unfortunate, but I think uh, it's because there is some denial. Well, but there is a lot of, of response back to that. I was just uh, doing a telesummit this morning with a lovely young woman who shared with me after the call that she is a Jane and mm-hmm. lifelong vegetarian and new vegan. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of, of wonderful stuff going on in the Jain community around the world. So tell me a little bit, Sarab, about how it is to be a, a physicist, an engineer, and a person with deep religious views. I understand your religion is not theistic, but it's very definitely a religion. How do you bring science into it? 
Well, I, I would say for me, it's um, I go back to the basic principles of Jainism, and Jainism believes in time that goes back without a beginning and time that goes on forward without an end, and that very much coincides with my you know basic view of the laws of physics, which is that you know there is no um, well, so there is no. Uh, beginning of the universe, they talk about things like the Big Bang, but even that could be a local event. And so I would say what I've kind of felt about time and space is very much in line with what I think physics says today, especially in terms of, like, say, energy not being created. It can't be created nor destroyed. And so there's a time element to that. And for me, also, this idea of God existing had always been something that I was un- unclear about. How could God exist? you know, as a creative force, and what happened before that? And was there something, will there be something that ends it, and why would it end? And so I think it's just the ideas of time and space and limitless time and space that just really intrigued me. And the more I learn about Jainism, the more I realize that they actually do not talk about a beginning or an end, and it's always about change and how how we as souls change, how energy, how material in the universe changes. And so that was kind of what got me on this path, and it was very much in line with what I felt was true and what science was telling us. Ah, fascinating. So it seems that for someone with Indian roots and an American identity today, this could be a very interesting path to follow. What do American Jains find attractive about the faith? You know, I would say that a lot of them are questioning you know, a lot of things in their lives, and especially, you know, we mentioned um, there's a great movement within the Jain community, especially from younger Jains, to become vegan. And that's really happened over the last couple of decades. And so I think what they find most interesting is that these principles are relevant today. And so I talked about the, the five main principles, the bunch of fruits. And if you look at each of those, I mean, my view when I talk about Jainism to Jain audiences, especially younger people, is to say this is a, a beautiful framework for us to use in any type of a decision or dilemma we have in our lives. And we should look at this and say, well, you know, the various options we have, are they more in line with these principles or not? And when you start thinking about, you know, various issues of the world and all the crises we have today, you know, these principles are are wonderful guides. For instance, this principle of astia, which translates to, some will say, non-stealing. But if you kind of expand it further, it's really about taking only what is given to you. And then you ask yourself, well, what is really given to us in this world? And then that has consequences to environmental issues, has consequences to how we treat and abuse and kill animals. It has to do with how we treat other human beings on this planet and all of that. And so each of these principles, I think people are seeing that they're really applicable today. They're really timeless principles, and we can really use these. And so I think just learning the basic ideas behind Jainism is very appealing, and especially when it's presented in all the different um, things that we, as, as people living in the West, face. This is a great way for us to look for solutions. So how historically, I mean, I understand that all the Ahimsa religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, were birthed in, in the same part of the world and shared mm-hmm. some similar roots, but it seems that Jainism has managed to stay close to Ahimsa in, in ways that some of the other larger traditions maybe that did more proselytizing and more moving around the world have, have not been able to do. And I remember in studying Jainism in school, we were taught that Jains were among the most prosperous people in India because they mm-hmm. had largely not been farmers because they didn't want to kill the little bugs that invariably mm-hmm. are going to die through the process of, of farming. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that um, Jainism kept so close to the Ahimsa principle? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I would just say that, you know, Ahimsa is really, uh, for anyone who's grown up in a Jain tradition, Ahimsa is really first and foremost in the whole religion. And there's such a strong emphasis on it. And, and diet is such an important part of that, too. And so most people who are followers of Jainism probably would raise their families you know, in the Jain tradition, and that would, of course, initially, that everyone would understand is diet. And so that's, so diet is such an important part of it. And because Ahimsa is such an important part of Jainism, I think that's how it has kind of maintained itself. And, um, 
And it's, it's also a very close community. So even in, in North America, there are a lot of, um, you know, centers throughout, uh, throughout the U.S. and also in Canada, you know, that have um, Jane societies. And so they also propagate those values and principles through the community and then also the religious activities that, uh, that take place. So I think, you know, a, a, a large percentage of Jains are vegetarian, and anyone who's a true follower of Jainism I would say the vast majority are absolutely vegetarian, and most of them are actually now more and more knowledgeable about veganism, and many of which, many of whom are actually trans, you know, are moving towards that uh, that direction. So, and Sarah, I would say, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm, yeah, sure. I, I was just going to ask, is there a book or a website that you would recommend for a non-Jane who's interested in, in more information? Yeah, you know, I, I don't have one specific website. I'm not really, you know... Um, through any particular organization, but I would say nowadays there's so much great information online that Google searches are, are fantastic. They but are one indeed. of the books that I think has been really, really helpful for me, um, which is probably written about uh, two decades, no, probably back in the, around 1980, which was a textbook by Professor Padmanabh Jaini, and it's called The Jaina Path to Purification. And it was actually a textbook used at uh, Berkeley, at uh, UC Berkeley. And I thought that was a wonderful book that I read, you know, probably about 20 years ago, which was which was excellent. And if anyone wants really a good, thorough analysis of Jainism, that would be a great book. And Michael Tobias also wrote a great book about 15, 20 years ago called Life Force. That was another great book. So a lot of great books, and the websites are just, uh, you know, countless. I think you can find great information nowadays. Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, Sarab, thank you so much for taking this time. I could ask you questions forever even though I recall a certain dinner at a South Indian restaurant when I think my (laughs) husband asked you questions almost forever. We're seekers. What can I tell you? Thank you so very much. (laughs) Thanks also to Bob Isaacson of Dharma Voices for Animals, dharmavoicesforanimals.org. Please be with us next week. We are going to learn about vegan scene in Southern California, the coolest, most hopping vegan spot maybe on the planet, who knows. We'll also be joined by Milton Mills, MD, from Washington, D.C. He knows all about why the Bible says we ought to be vegan, plus he knows a lot about digestion and why our guts say we ought to be vegan. Join us, please, once again. Thank you so much for being with us today. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. is full of voices advertising television politics colleagues family and friends all are too happy to tell us how to live in all of that noise it's easy to miss the one voice that matters your own soul what would happen if you could hear that voice imagine the clarity confidence and courage that would be yours and the life you could create join janet connor best-selling author of writing down your soul the Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God. According to an ancient Hindu teaching, If you can only speak the truth and tell no lies for 12 consecutive years, you can attain enlightenment. Resolve to be honest with yourself and others starting today. And after 4,383 days, you just may become enlightened. This meditative moment from Reverend Joan Gattuso and Unity Magazine is brought to you by Unity.
ever notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. <laughs> 